Well, top of the morning to you, laddies and lassies. It is my pleasure to be worshiping with you this morning out in God's good creation, and it's a beautiful day for that. My name is Will Downey. I am the Director of Student Ministries here at the barn, and I'm also an occasional fill-in for Matt Blazer when he is out fighting crime or when he's on a mini sabbatical. And one of those two situations happens more often than the other. I'll let you figure out for yourself which one that is. Uh, The past couple summers here at the barn, we have been working our way through the book of Acts and also through leaders of the early church as they appear in Acts. Acts is the history of the early church, and it tells the story of Jesus' followers on a mission. The series and the picture that's on the front of your bulletin is called Asylum, because the church can be a place of calm and a place of refuge, uh, like an asylum in a storm. But it can also be a little crazy and a little messy, more like Arkham Asylum from the Batman series. It's similar to a family. And that's why so many biblical passages refer refer to the church using family terms. We have our church family. We have our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I consider the barn to be my home church. Uh, As Kim was saying earlier, we are a spiritual family. Family. That word really fills each of us with an array of thoughts and emotions and memories. For better or for worse, our family of origin leaves a far-reaching imprint on each and every one of us. Take, for example, your birth order. Is there anyone here who's the oldest child in your family? Any oldest? Okay, very good. Oldest children, you tend to be mature. You tend to be responsible and self-directed, which is good because you are all the parenting beta tests. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mom and dad, they got all of their kinks, all of their crazy parenting tips that they read on a blog out on you. You had a lot of oopses to overcome in order to become the successful and upstanding members of society that you are today. But even still, you live with this envy complex towards your younger siblings. How come I couldn't do that when I was his age? It's especially true when we're looking at the youngest child. Do we have any youngest children in the family? Yeah. Uh, I happen to be the youngest child in my family, and when people learn about that, they typically say something like, oh, That makes so much sense. (laughs) I respond, I don't think I know what that means. But I do. Feigning ignorance to get what you want, that is the youngest child's way. We get mom and dad after they've been softened from years of trying to parent on principle. We were babied and we love it. The only thing that being the youngest child does not have going for it is a record in the family album. You see, the oldest child, every single moment of their birth, of their development, is meticulously cataloged. By the time the youngest comes around, there's nothing quite groundbreaking enough to bring out the camera for. We've got a a birth picture, maybe a birthday. If we fit in the frame, we're in the Christmas picture. I mean, the only record that I have that I started walking is this, right? And then they're the only childs. Is there anybody who's the only child in your family? There it is. People used to think that the Earth was the center of the universe around which all celestial bodies orbit. Uh, nowadays, most scientifically people, uh, scientifically-minded people think that the Earth actually orbits around the sun and that our galaxy is just one of many. But our only childs, you know the truth. 
All things in God's good creation orbit around you. Every only child is God's gift to humanity. You're a precious daffodil. Maybe you're the only child because mom and dad got it perfect the first time, or maybe they were too scared to roll the dice a second time. But either way, you're all just the best. All right, so I did oldest child, youngest child, only child. Am I missing anyone? Middle child. Oh, I almost forgot the middle child. Well, that about sums that up. Okay, so I've been kidding. I've been, uh, I've been painting sibling dynamics with very broad strokes and generalizations. But nevertheless, whatever your family dynamic was like, its impact on you was huge. In the nature and nurture debate, many psychologists argue that we are inescapably a product of our family of origin and that the culture that we were born into. But is that really the case? Are the patterns that we grew up with really the determining factor for the rest of our lives? Well, I don't believe so. And I think a vital component that's often left out of the nature and nurture debate is God. God has this way of radically changing the people that he meets. And today we're going to be looking at one such individual. Someone who went from being a narcissistic little brother to being one of the most foundational members of the early church. Someone who went from being a self-centered jerk to being somebody who pleaded for the, for the needs of others, for the cause of others. Uh, the person we're looking at this morning is God's little brother. His name is James, or Jim Christ, as his friends called him. That's not true. But what is true is that James was transformed from an all-about-me guy to an all-about-others man. Now, sadly, I don't have one passage for us this morning. Since we're looking at a person, James, this is going to be a topical sermon. So we're going to be bouncing around the New Testament. Uh, my preaching instructor in seminary told his students that he would preach one topical sermon every year, and he'd spend the next 51 weeks repenting. Uh, I, hope, I hope that doesn't ring true for today, but regardless, if you want to go to our first stop, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, flip there, scroll there, whatever floats your canoe. Uh, over the course of the sermon, we're going to be looking at James before the resurrection, James after the resurrection, and then finally we're going to be looking at what James' story means for us today. Let's begin with who this James guy was. If you couldn't tell from my Jim Christ comment, James was the little brother of Jesus. His parents were Mary and Joseph Christ. The Christ were just one big happy family. And this is probably a good time to clarify, if you didn't know, uh, Christ wasn't actually Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Uh, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, or king. We know that James was Jesus' brother because in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, Jesus is preaching and he's doing miracles in his hometown of Nazareth. And the townspeople are absolutely incredible, incredulous. And they exclaim, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? This is probably also a good time to bring up that our brothers and sisters in Christ who come from a Catholic tradition, um, they would have issues with us saying that Jesus had brothers. They view Mary as an eternal virgin. Uh, and so the idea of having children after Jesus would just be impossible. Uh, they would look at these people as cousins rather than brothers and sisters. But you came to a Protestant church this morning. 
We don't have a problem with Mary having children after Jesus. And the ESV says brothers, so we're going with that today. Um, but I'm not here to start a holy war, so if, if cousin's more palatable to you, just make the mental switch every time I say brother. You good? All right. Nice. Uh, did you know that Jesus didn't start Jesusing until he was like in his 30s? The Bible records his birth. There's a, a very brief episode from his angsty tween years in Luke 2. And then after that, we don't see him again until he's in his 30s. He goes to get baptized. He kicks off the whole Christian movement. He goes around preaching, performing incredible miracles, calling people to repentance for three years, after which time he's crucified. And I have to ask, if he knew his life was going to be cut short, why did it take him so long to get started? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, the overarching answer is, of course, that God's perfect timing was in play. And while the Bible doesn't give a specific reason, there are hints at what may, at least humanly speaking, have been the cause for Jesus' late start. Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, is in the Christmas narrative. He's also present in that short account uh, for when Jesus was a preteen, but there is no mention of him after that. Through all of Jesus' time uh, growing up and through all of his time as an adult, we don't hear about him anymore. Mary, his mom, shows up several times, but there's no Joseph. And that's led many interpreters to assume that he had died somewhere between Jesus' teen and adult years. Now, in the ancient world, if the father dies, it would fall on the firstborn son to take care of the family. In the Christ family, this means Jesus. Now, some scholars believe that, humanly speaking, Jesus waited so long to launch out because he was taking care of his mother and his brothers and sisters. Now, again, whatever the reason, God was in control of the circumstances, and things played out exactly as uh, he had purposed. But I believe it makes good sense in light of what the Bible does tell us and in light of Jesus' character that he held off in launching out um, to do an honorable thing, to take care of his family. Uh, and I'm sure that James and the rest of his, uh, the rest of his siblings, his mother, appreciated that. But when Jesus does begin his ministry, his family is less than supportive. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus is again, he's making a scene in his hometown of Nazareth. The crowds of people, they are mobbing in to hear the words of the miracle worker. And in verse 21, the Bible states that when Jesus' family heard it, they went out and they seized him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. James and the rest of them are saying, Jesus, we really appreciate what you've done for our family. You've been good to us, but I think you've gone off the deep end here. You're a pretty good brother, but the Messiah, the sinless son of God, you didn't actually believe mom's virgin birth story. Come on, you got to stop. You're embarrassing us. James and company, they're not thinking about God's plan. They're not thinking about what God's doing. They're thinking about their reputation, which was at risk with their unhinged older brother making a fool of himself. And that wasn't an isolated incident. The passage that was read this morning that Joseph was reading uh, is in John 7, 2 through 5. And if you remember, James and Jesus' brothers, they're making jabs at him. They're denying that he can do the miracles that people have claimed that he's done. There's a holiday that's about to start, the Feast of Booths, and that's going on in Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths was kind of like uh, if Thanksgiving and a really cool campout came together and had a baby, that would be, that would be the Feast of Booths. Um, it was uh, a time around harvest. That was a time of plenty. 
where the Jews would camp out in tents or booths. Uh, and they do that all around Jerusalem to remind themselves of their humble origins, to remind themselves of how far God had brought them. Uh, it's, it's a neat holiday idea. Now, every Jew worth his salt would have been there. Jerusalem was in the south of Israel. It was the hotbed of Judaism. But Jesus had spent almost all of his time up to that point up north, um, far, far from the nation's religious center. And picking up on this, James and his kin start chiding Jesus. Why don't you go down south so your followers can see the works you're doing? No one works in secret if he wants his message to be known openly. If you can really do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, it can be hard to pick up on tone in writing, especially if something was said in Aramaic, then translated into Greek, then translated into English, as we have with the New Testament. So in a vacuum, this, this could be read as a supportive statement. Like, come on, you can do it, get going. But verse 5 clarifies that they were saying this because not even his brothers believed in him. So I guess sarcasm it is. If James couldn't stop Jesus from making a fool of himself by force, maybe he could shame him into stopping. The last passage that we're looking at pre-resurrection is John 19, verses 25 to 27. And here Jesus is being crucified. And there's no mention of James. And that's kind of the point. The only family member that the Bible mentions is Mary, Jesus' mother. Jesus looks out and sees her next to his disciple John, and calling out from the cross, Jesus asks that Mary take John as her son, and that John take care of Mary as though she were his own brother. And as the Bible says, from that moment on, John took Mary into his own home, and he cared for her. And this is a touching moment in a dark episode, but it's also a break from tradition. Because if Joseph is out of the picture and Jesus is about to die, traditionally it would go to the second-born son to take care of the mother. Because of the name order that we see whenever Jesus' brothers are listed in the Bible, it's most likely that after Jesus, the next firstborn would have been James. But Jesus entrusts Mary to his follower, John, not his brother, James. And I take this to mean that at this point, Jesus' brothers were still living in bitter denial of who he was. And so he would have been less fit to take care of Mary than John. Throughout the Gospels, we see nothing but opposition from James and Jesus' other siblings. They are more concerned with their own reputation, with their own well-being, than with their brother's mission to save the world from sin and from death. But that wouldn't last for much longer. In every instance where we see James pop up after the Lord's resurrection, he is most certainly a changed man. And the reason for this is that James had a run-in with his resurrected brother. His brother, who he grew up with and then watched die. This reunion is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 6-7. In that moment, James finally realizes that all that hogwash that Jesus had been spouting about being God's son who must die for the sins of the world, it was actually true. Jesus had been vocal with everybody that he was going to be rejected by the leaders, he was going to be killed, and then he was going to rise again in three days. And that's ludicrous, of course, until it actually happens. And if Jesus was telling the truth about this, then it's likely that he was correct about the rest of what he had been teaching people. The next time we see James, after Jesus has risen and he's departed from heaven, is in the book of Acts. There it is, we finally got there. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus' followers, they are all together. They're united in purpose. They're devoting themselves to prayer. They have renewed vigor now that their master is alive. The 11 apostles are there. There are many godly women who have been supporting Jesus throughout his ministry. Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. And finally, the author of Acts stated that Jesus' brothers were there too. They had been against him his whole life. But after witnessing the resurrection, Jesus' own brothers are now all in. They are united with the rest of the Jesus followers in purpose and in prayer. So James came to a place of faith, but anything really changed in his heart. That brings us to the next stop on our Bible Express. The next place that James shows up is in Acts 15 at something called the Jerusalem Council. I think in about a month we're going to hear more about the Jerusalem Council, but I'll give you uh, maybe a Reader's Digest version right now. Um, You can turn there if you'd like, Acts 15. But in the explosive growth of Christianity, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, almost all of the Christ followers were Jewish. That makes sense. Jesus was a Jew, and Christianity was looked at as uh, a development within Judaism rather than an entirely new religion. However, After Paul gives his life to Jesus and he begins his missionary work, there is a large influx of non-Jewish believers to the Christian faith. The Bible refers to non-Jews as Gentiles, so that's probably almost all of you and me. Um, As you might expect, when people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds start coming together, there is messiness. There is moral and ethical questions that have never really been asked before but are now very relevant. Uh, The church today has not always done a great job of handling these situations perfectly. But the early church in Acts gives us, I think, a good model that we could learn from. Jews who were living under the law of Moses, they were expected to be circumcised and to uphold strict dietary and ritual cleanliness rules. Now that was, that was par for course for Jews. That was ex- what was expected. So even when they became Christians, the Jewish converts would typically keep these practices up. Converts to Judaism were expected to do the same. So, when a large influx of non-Jews become Christ followers and they start entering the church, there's this like unspoken expectation that everyone was going to get in line. And this unspoken expectation eventually becomes a spoken expectation. They were Pharisees turned Christian who were declaring that all of the Gentiles who came in, they needed to get circumcised if they really wanted to follow Jesus. Um, Back then, as well as today, most people frown on unnecessary medical procedures, right? Uh, especially, especially if it's to like a sensitive area of the body. Um, so, leaders in the church in Jerusalem, they are calling all of the players to convene at Jerusalem. And what they're going to do, they're going to get everyone together, they're going to talk it out uh, and come to a solution. And the person who called everyone to Jerusalem was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, It was James. That's right, in two decades, he had gone from a cynical skeptic calling Jesus a coot to the leader of the most prominent church in the world at the time. Now, is that just nepotism, or did he have the character to back it? Well, after hearing all of the arguments from the Christian Pharisees, who were pro-circumcision, after hearing from Paul and Barnabas about the incredible work that the Holy Spirit was doing on the mission field, And after hearing from Peter about why Jesus' salvation was being offered to non-Jews in the first place, it was time to make a decision. 
And if you remember, throughout the Gospels, every time we see James, he's acting in his own self-interest. He wants to save face. He wants to do, uh, he wants to avoid doing anything that could hurt his reputation. He has a desire for comfort rather than doing things that will further God's plan. But a lot had changed since James came to faith. And rather than doing the easy thing, the familiar thing, James gives a speech that concludes by declaring in Acts 15, 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And all of our bacon and shrimp lovers in the barn's outdoor worship area let out a big sigh of relief. But James doesn't stop there. He goes a step further in verse 20. He says, Do not trouble them, but write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from meat that's strangled, and from meat that has had its blood in it. Um, Those are, aside from the fornication thing, those are all things related to Jewish dietary laws. Um, And so it's just declared that the Gentiles, they shouldn't be troubled with keeping all of these non-moral Jewish laws. But now it seems like he's backpedaling. What's up with that? Well, I don't think James is making a once-for-all statement on the morality of eating food prepared in certain ways. Rather, I believe he's making a statement to promote unity among the Jewish believers in this particular situation with Gentile believers. After all, there was a Jew and a Roman believer, and they were worshiping together in Rome, And Antonio pulls out a chicken wing from his lunchbox in the middle of the worship service that he had gotten from the pagan sacrifice barbecue down the street. Immediately, the whole thing would have been thrown into chaos and people wouldn't have been worshiping God anymore. They would have been arguing. So James is trying to find a balance between, on the one hand, asserting the freedom that we have in Christ, while on the other hand, not flaunting our freedom in a way that would be disruptive to worshiping God and furthering his kingdom. Paul touches on that same principle, actually applied in very similar circumstances, in Galatians 5.13, when he writes, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Standing up for the rights of those who are different than him, while also maintaining the unity of the group, God's little brother sure has come a long way. It's because of this transformation on a heart level that I find many of the statements in the book of James so impactful. The book of James is a letter that's written by Jesus' little brother, now the head of the church in Jerusalem, to Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And it begins with an introduction. He writes that he is James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This statement shows James' humble submission both to God the Father as well as his brother, Jesus, who he now recognizes as Christ, the Messiah, and Lord, divine. If you peruse through James' letter, you'll find that it is very easy to read, but it's challenging to let it read you. Because James' teaching is so practical, in many places the meaning is readily apparent, and actually it's already applied to a real-life circumstance. But that means it is regularly going to confront you with questions like, am I applying the teaching of Jesus to my everyday life? Am I treating others the way that I would like to be treated? Am I thinking of others more than I'm thinking of myself? One of the most prominent themes in James's letter is about the interplay between faith, what we believe in Christians, and works, 
how we act as Christians. Following the teaching throughout the Bible, we at the barn affirm that Jesus saves us by grace through faith. Our eternal salvation is not a result of anything meritorious inside of us or of any good works that we do. It's solely on our acceptance of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, among many other places. James makes a powerful, letter, uh, powerful statement in his letter that has made some people throughout church history uncomfortable. He writes in James chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. But I say, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now on the surface, this could look like a contradiction of the idea of salvation by faith alone. But given James's story, I think it's actually accentuating what it means to have our life changed by the risen and reigning Christ. You don't need to work to earn new life in Christ. But when you've had a real encounter with him, and when your life has really been transformed by him, you won't be able to help good works from cropping up in your life. This teaching is in the book of James, but I think it's also clearly manifest in James's life. You guys may not have known this, but I have uh, limited telepathic ability. All right, I hear, I hear some of you thinking, that's all well and good for James, but I'm not God's little brother or sister. What difference could his story possibly make in my life? I'm glad you asked or thought, because the power that transformed James's life is not any different from the power that changes our lives today. We all come from different families, different upbringings, and different backgrounds. We all have different personalities, and our personalities have strengths as well as shadows. My experiences are not your experiences and vice versa, but regardless of who you are or how you're wired, where you've come from or what you've come through, God is able to transform your life. You don't have to be defined by your birth order. The envious oldest child, the forgotten middle child, the snotty youngest child, or the self-centered only child. You don't need to be defined by race or gender stereotypes. You don't need to be defined by the mistakes and the regrets that you have. James's flaws early on, they seem all the more dicey, given his family relationship with Jesus Christ. But that didn't prevent him from having his whole life transformed when he came to faith. If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus' saving grace, you can experience that transformation in your own life as well. While we experience life transformation down to our very core, when we give our life to Jesus, we continue to experience life transformation each day as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Now, in Protestants' desire to emphasize the freeness of salvation, I think sometimes we neglect God's call to personal and to corporate holiness in the Christian life. James writes to counteract that. Each day we make choices when we're running late from appointments, when we get the wrong order at Dunkin' Donuts, when we see a homeless person with a sign on the side of the road asking for help. If our Christian faith, the miraculous, gracious work that Jesus has done in our life, never prompts us to respond to Christ's love by showing love and compassion to other people, James says that our faith is dead. Now, however, as we choose to think and speak and act in accordance with Jesus' teaching, 
the Spirit is making us more like him. We don't need to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. That's his work in us. But at the same time, if you've been walking with Christ for several years or decades, there should be a marked difference from you than when you first began. Though it's different for each of us, we all have destructive patterns that we need to overcome through God's empowering spirit. I think John Newton may have said this idea that I'm trying to get at best. He writes, Though I'm not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say that I'm not what I once was, and by God's grace, I am what I am. James, along with his other siblings, he was a jealous, self-centered younger brother. But after seeing Christ and coming to a place of faith, he was transformed. He became a selfless all-star in the early church. We also have parts of our past that can hold us back from doing and from being all that God has called us to. By his mercy, we don't need to be defined by our past. We're saved by grace, and we're children of the king. So I want to challenge you this week to take some time for reflection. Um, if you have somebody who is close to you, who you could call or ask to come over, you can loop them into the process as well. But I want you to think about, is there any baggage in my past that I've been carrying for too long? Are there any habits or mindsets that I have which are not pleasing to God? Maybe you've had them since you were a child. Maybe you saw them in your parents and they were imprinted on you. Maybe you picked them up yourself. It's not always the mother's fault. Regardless of where these things came from, they don't need to stick around. Jesus Christ has the power to give us victory. Pray to him, yearn for him, and you won't be turned away. You may still struggle, but you can have victory in Jesus. We aren't yet who we hope to be, but praise God, we don't have to be who we once were. Please join with me in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God of second chances. Lord, I thank you that we are not defined um, by our past, but we're defined how you define us, Lord. People who have been saved by grace, your children, who you have a bright future for. Lord, I thank you so much um, for the testimony of James, Lord, for how far we saw that he was able to come just by having experience with you. And I pray that we experience that own power in our lives, Lord, that we, um, that we tap into the, the grace that you have available to all of us to have victory over the things um, that have so long entangled us. Lord, I thank you for being good to us. I thank you for the life that we have in your son. In your name we pray. Amen.